0: This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Okay, first and foremost, for everybody who's listening to this podcast, let's get the elephant out of the room. I'm here with the iconic author, Jim Miller. <laughs> we did this podcast already several months ago. Unfortunately, there was a technical hiccup and it was not recorded, but let me give you the preview to everybody at home. It was one of the great conversations in societal history. It was a love fest. We really got into it, I was super thrilled with it. Uh, I fell in love, you, you know, what's sad is, what will not happen in this podcast is, you could see my what was my admiration from afar for many years, because as many of you who are listening know, I don't really read books, and I've ironically read several of Jim's books. He's the only author I actually think that I've read more than once. Um, and you could literally see my, from afar, admiration turn into real life admiration. We got into a ton of parenting and psychology and just epic shit, all lost in the ether, Mr. Miller. So we should tell everybody that because I think the cadence of this interview will have to be contextual to that one. And as you can tell right away, I love to be authentic with my audience. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm doing all right. Uh, actually, uh, sorry we can't repeat what we did before, but glad to be back.
0: Have you been? How was your New Year's? All that? Um, you know,
1: I think in this day and age, as long as uh, I'm he- my kids are healthy and uh, I'm healthy, uh, it's a, it's a win-win. The bar is very low.
0: <laughs> I want to talk about Tinderbox, um, but before we do that, um, why don't you give everybody a little bit of an overview of? what you do professionally, we will do a little bit more origin story, which I loved the last time I'm excited to talk about it again. The mother stuff really hits with me. Um, But why don't you tell everybody what you do? Uh,
1: I just finished my fifth or uh, fifth book, uh, which is called Tinderbox. It's a history of HBO. And prior to that, I did histories on Saturday Night Live, ESPN, Creative Artist Agency and a book on the United States Senate. Um, I write for newspapers. And before that I was an executive, most importantly, I'm a father.
0: And why do you think like, let me start with this. I love your books because it's popular culture documentaries in written form. Is that fair? Like, that's how, like, I think about like, man, why did I love the ESPN thing? The Saturday night thing? Why can't I wait to read this HBO thing? Like, is that fair? How I'm thinking about Well,
1: it. I think it's it's good news for me because the approach that I you know look, oral histories I think are really important because there's no way even Ernest Hemingway at a keyboard can convey the verisimilitude, the sensibilities, the uniqueness of everyone's individual voice and perspectives. And so when you have like in the SNL book, when you have Billy Murray talking about the last time you saw Gilda Radner alive or In this book, when you when I was talking to David Chase and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and I mean literally hundreds of others, I did 757 interviews because I feel like it's a great opportunity for readers to get behind the curtain and really hear directly from the people involved and not. And I try and be as unobtrusive in the books as possible. I'm trying to obviously there's a narrative thread to the books. But I'm trying to create a book of record whereby I can come in and I can use supplemental facts, like sometimes financial information or other things
0: just to keep... Ratings or sales. I remember, you know, it's funny you just said that, that subscriptions to Kate, you know, like I've always loved that you've done that because what you're doing is you're helping me, the reader, because a lot of times what you have in your books is you have two different people describing the same event from, you know... Very different points of view, just as humans like to do things. And I think effectively, in the ones that I've read, um, you bring in an outside voice that kind of brings some non-debatable data. That not that it steers you to believe one person or the other. It's just there as an anchoring for why while I interpret.
1: Yes. Yes, and I also feel like there are supplemental facts that then are kind of like wind at the back of what you're about to read that they give you context right. and perspective. Look, I mean, these books are always like a Rashomon mm-hmm. kind of effect, but it, I don't just put in the book anything that anybody says. I have to report things and make sure that they're verifiable.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Even when you just said that, it took me back to like, I'm like, you know, I read only on vacation, always by a pool or a beach. And literally, as you were just talking, I don't know which one of the the SNL or the ESPN book or the, excuse me the CAA book like I'm not sure which one of them but I can always feel like changing the chapter and it's segueing something like and now in 1986 by now ESPN has got 47 trillion viewers and like like I always loved that structure to it. Again, the the biggest compliment I can say is disproportionately the thing that I consume the most of in the world are documentaries. And what I think makes you the only author that I've read more than once is it feels like I'm watching a documentary. And my reading comprehension is poor, hence the not reading books, but I really love your style.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, look, you know, in a place like HBO, there's like a lot of territory to cover, right? I mean, there's documentaries, series, uh, takeovers, sports. And
0: I assume, I don't want you to give me too much because I actually wanna read it. I think I'm gonna go away in April. And I'll actually definitely now read it. Like I assume you also do what you did with ESPN. Like how the fuck it started? Yeah, of
1: course. I mean the origin stories. I mean, look, I have a podcast called the Origins, and Origins is my favorite kind of uh, world to investigate. And I think what you'll see is, without giving
0: anything away, SNL. Can you give me? Can you give me? Can you give me a little away? Yeah, sure. I mean, I need a scoop here, Jim. I need ratings. Yeah, for the you fires. Can you give me a scoop. Um, SNL,
1: <laughs> ESPN. CAA, and HBO, all started from ridiculously humble origins. They, nobody thought they were going to hang around. In fact, 20 minutes before the first SNL episode, uh, Chevy Chase said to someone, I wonder what I'm going to do next, because no one thought the show was going to survive. And so it, with HBO, look, HBO starts with an investment of $150,000 by Time, Inc., there's a couple. They're losing money. There's a couple of key times in HBO's first four years, five years, where Time Inc. is going to hit the delete key on it. They're they're tired of
0: losing money and sure, not not to give it away, but I'm being selfish now because I'm a huge fight fan. How big of a deal was boxing for HBO?
1: Boxing was huge in two in two ways. One is I, I spent a lot of time talking about the Thrilla in Manila and the Rumble in the Jungle. Those were two fights that. HBO had and miraculously had and they got the attention of Time Make and the executives of Time Make and I think in some ways that gave them a new license on life and the second thing is that boxing became a powerful engine for subscriptions because men can at that you time, see men controlled like the wallet the as boxers. the executive said yeah. and they were crazy about uh, boxing. boxing and boxing So HBO took boxing away from the networks. The networks had given up on boxing.
0: I know they did. But wait a minute. The Rumble and Jungle. What year did HBO start?
1: 1972.
0: I didn't realize. Right. Because you said the Rumble and Jungle. Wait a minute. You know, because my brain goes to like more like 79, 78, 80, 81. What about about stand-up comedy? Andrew Dice Clay? like.
1: Well, that's one of the great things that HBO does, which is that. They decide how are they going to make themselves different, right? And so, if you're a comedian in the '70s and the '80s, even in the '90s, your your big the the big touchdown, right, in in your career would be to get on Johnny Carson. And if you go on Johnny Carson, you're going to get four and a half minutes and the network sensors are going to do literally a colonoscopy on your routine. They want to hear every single word. They want to know subject matter. And, you know, there's not a lot of freedom. HBO comes along and says to Andrew Dice Clay, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Robert Klein, Steve Martin, everybody. And it says, look, not only are you going to get an entire hour, but we don't care what you say. In in fact, Gary, Mm
0: -hmm. George
1: Carlin comes on, George Carlin comes on HBO and does a comedy concert built around just seven words that you can't say on television. Like that, I mean, what could be a greater example of that? And so all of a sudden you start to see that HBO is garnering a kind of of the talent and an audience that follows that talent um, that the networks didn't have. I love
0: that. So let's go back to my favorite part of our last interview that is never going to be seen or heard in the world. Uh, Which is, I asked you, or we got into, how'd you get to this? Like, you know, so many people aspire to be the writer that you are. What was it in your childhood? Take me back. Let's do it again, because it's compelling shit. What do you think were the foundational parenting, environmental, uh, neighborhood, education teachers, what was the what were the ingredients? You like origin stories? Me too, mister. Here we go. <sighs> Your origin stories. What, what put you in the position to have one of the more significant careers? in right Uh, now?
1: well, first I want to say that, uh, one of the reasons why I love interviewing people is so I don't have to talk about myself. So this is like root canal, but, um, I think most immediately, uh,
0: look, I got, let me, let me give you a little, let me give you a little Novocaine. Yeah. yeah I, got... right, go.
1: I mean, most immediately mm-hmm. I, I got divorced when I had a nine, seven and three year old. And, uh, I was an executive before that, and uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, raise my kids, and so I had shared joint custody full time, and uh, that's when I became a full time writer, and uh, that gave me the opportunity to uh, be at home and take the kids to school, pick the kids' to school up, to live with—I mean, they're with me half the time, and I—I I wrote in my my entire professional schedule was built around uh, my kid's life. And I think, you know, I wouldn't do it any differently. Um, I always enjoyed writing. I worked at the Washington post, but for the New York times and other things, but um, look, I think writing as you well know that it's a solitary enterprise for the most part. I mean, unless you're working on a TV show and you're in a writer's room or whatever. And uh, I think I enjoy interaction with others. And I, I like the idea of, working with a team and being part of a team but um, for me it was uh, it was no contest and the, the choice was uh, turned out to be a great one because I got to be you know with my kids
0: so because you loved it but you were in executive life you had this big life event where you made this choice the writing became a highly flexible job during that time right now there's a lot you could be an executive and pull off what you did because of Zoom and really where we're kind of going culturally. But at the time, there weren't that many jobs that really gave that level of flexibility. And one, and it also happened to be something you thought you were good at and loved.
1: Yeah, I mean, back, look, this was like, you know, 16, 17 years ago, it was impossible. You know, I mean, if you have a big job, you're working 80 hours a week
0: In in the office and in the
1: office or traveling. So Right. I mean, I had certain I had certain kind of constructs that I built into my. like I would never go more than three nights without seeing my kids. And uh, a lot of times I, you know, I made sure I, I would drop them off at school and then go on to work. I, I built my days around that as much as I could. But truth is, you know, look, there, there's always trade offs and, um, you of know, they're
0: they're hard. They're very hard. Um, what about you're, you're, you know, you've taken me to your adult life, I really want to know about the neighborhood and the parenting and the foundational things like what what do you think was instilled in you that has given you success or happiness?
1: Oh, gosh, Um, I think I had uh, polar opposites for parents. I mean, I love both of my parents. But I think my mom, you know, I once made dinner for my mom. And she said, Oh, my gosh, darling, this is so delicious. And I said, Mom, You got to try it first before you give me the compliment, and uh, Mm. it was that. I mean, there was kind of like unbridled enthusiasm and devotion, blind, blind, yeah. yeah. And uh, my dad was just the opposite, you know. And so, um, not a lot of feedback and not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, connection. But he 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 operated in his. Did he work
0: all the time? um, Not
1: all the time, but I think he was, uh,
0: you know. But he came home and went into the shed, like he was one of those he, that generation. Dads. He was uh,
1: very, uh, he was very consumed by classical music, so we listened to a lot of. I wasn't allowed to listen to rock and roll except on headphones, and he would, uh, you know, his way of coping was uh, classical music and poker, and uh, so uh, he lived that life.
0: So he would he would he would come home. He was a dad of that generation. He would get dinner and go into his area of the house and play classical
1: music. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, look, he wasn't doing it against us. I think that's just how he built his life. And my mother was incredibly accommodating. But I think that, uh, you know, look, I didn't have any kind of like they were because they were on opposite ends, you know, end zones. There was nothing between the 40 yard lines that I kind of learned while I was living at home. I think that was a lesson that I had to learn, you know, once I went off to school and then in jobs, which is that, you know sometimes you're going to do something and it's going to be great. And sometimes it's not going to be great. And you can't take things too personally and you can't be addicted to, you know, solely uh, incredible, you know, I mean, look, I remember the first time I did something at a job and my editors, I was at the Washington Post. My editor said, yeah, this is good. And then walked away. I was like, where's like the big golden star that my mom used to you know, give, you know, you got to, you got to. Right,
0: why are you not shutting, why are you not shutting down the the writing room and telling everybody that I'm Yeah, them? so
1: you got to find your own way. And I think that that's.
0: I, I, had a, I had a very, very, very similar framework. Really? I really did, yeah. Very similar. My mother, I once opened the door to a lady in McDonald's, like I was eight or nine. I remember exactly where I was in Plainfield, Jersey, in the Bradley Shopping Center at McDonald's. I opened the door for an elderly lady, you would have thought that I won the Nobel Peace Prize. My mom lost her shit, you are a gentleman, you are a fucking, you are a golden hearted boy, the way you treat people, not just your sister, but this woman, like, and by the way, you know, I think a lot about positive reinforcement um, and, and how people look for it and are addicted to it, which is why people who get positive reinforcement for their looks, you know, I think become become vulnerable at times. I think about myself, I'm a 46 year old man, and there was two areas of positive reinforcement for me in the first 15, 18 years of my life. One, my mother around my kindness and the way I treated people. And two, the world of business. When I sold lemonade, when I shoveled snow, when I washed cars, when I sold baseball cards. School wasn't it, sports wasn't it, my dad wasn't it. Nothing else was it. The two core positive reinforcement engines of my life were my mother on the category of behavior, what I would call emotional intelligence, kindness as a framework, and the business world. And I'm a 46 year old man who is black and white, a Very good businessman who is obsessed with teaching people that you can be nice and a good businessman. And I sit there and I'm like, my God. And this is like how many people get affected. Like the things that I look at people who struggle because school is their positive reinforcement engine. And then real life comes in and there's nothing similar to it.
1: Yeah. I think the amazing thing is that I don't know if you agree, but we don't have to go to Vienna to figure out that these moments, and I do believe you know, moments are what's matter, not necessarily achievements, but like that moment you had at McDonald's, I could think of moments when you know, when I was going to. And those are the moments that you carry with you for the rest of your life and how you and how they shape you and how you build off of them or how you recover from them. 100%. You know, I mean, look, I used to get the crap. I mean, I was well over four feet in junior high school and I used to get the crap beat out of me uh, by these two brothers after I got off the bus every day. And it was, you know, humiliating as hell. And uh, but, you know, like what what do you do with that? You know, and how does it shape you, and how do you recover from it, and what does it, you know, cause you to do? Um, I think that that's,
0: you know, um, yeah. Do you fo- do you fold do you fold in that adversity, or do you overcome it? I'm I'm with you. I mean, as a matter of fact, one of my biggest fears about modern parenting is that parents are obsessed when they have the luxury to be paying attention, which many parents in America definitely do, um, with eliminating any adversity in their child's life. We used to go outside. Like our parents didn't know shit. Oh Jim. my God, no idea. I mean, my mom might not like, please let's tell these 20 year olds that are listening. Cause I have plenty of them. Like if you're over 45, a lot of us remember living life where not only our parents didn't know, they didn't even know where we were. We went outside. And they couldn't
1: track us down because um, there were no phones.
0: They couldn't track us down. They had no idea what we were actually doing. We told them what we were doing, but we were doing different things. And then most of all, Outside of a couple of people, like the high percentage of us kept that shit to ourselves and worked it through.
1: Yes, except that sometimes we don't even realize that we displace, you know, we, we kind of like hold on to some of those things and then we displace them in our adult lives without even being, you know, kind of aware of it.
0: Incred- incredibly fair. Hence why purple, not red or blue, balance not the edges i couldn't agree with you more i can romanticize the way it used to be but there's no question that that came along with remarkably heavy baggage that manifested over the last 50 years in society the problem is the overcorrection has a really remarkable feel to it which is delusion of reality (laughs) the entitlement at scale and the incapability of dealing with any adversity well
1: yeah or the other thing that I mean, I've probably done them times in my life, and you have too. And we all do. Is sometimes we have, you know, painful or difficult moments where we try and repress them. And we think, you know, okay, we're going to take, you know, our foot and just stomp on it and hold it down to the ground for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years. And it still seeps out. It's, there's no such thing. 100%. You're you're kidding yourself.
0: It just, it's just correct. Absolutely true. Fascinating stuff. You know, it's funny. I have felt that my life has been special, and I mean this by the way, whether it's special or not, this is me talking to myself, because my parents were so different. So I believe that there are certain things that have happened to to me around my ability to understand people out of the serendipity of having parents that played it so opposite that it gave me a 360 view and made me prepared for every human's interaction, because I can see one of my parents through it and everything in between, to hear you say this and to see how you write and how you interview, and how I almost feel like I'm pretty confident that the style of writing that you do and interviewing that you do, that there may also be something there for you, similar to the way I feel about it in consumer behavior and selling and marketing.
1: I guess so, except that you and I, I mean, are opposites sides of the same coin, in the sense that, I mean, I'll be honest, I just don't, I'm really, I'm awful on social media. I I don't use the pronouns I, uh, you know, or even we. Uh, I'm not good at um, putting myself forward or celebrating myself or making anything about me. Um, And to a a fault. I mean, look, uh, I don't know. know
0: about that. I don't know about that. Let me explain. On the flip side, since we're doing some yin and yang, the amount of baggage, underestimation, misjudgment, hot takes that are grounded in nothing that comes along with putting yourself out there is quite challenging. You know, uh, you know there's, there's incredible um, power in that level of self-deprecation, humility, and behind the scenes that leads to a level of peace that one that puts them out in front, like myself, will never have.
1: I get, do you allow yourself to have expectations? No. Yeah, I don't either. That's the key.
0: It's one. It's I, I would argue that the greatest. Strength in my life is lack of experience. That's what
1: my dad taught my life with my dad taught me because I think it, it was like when I was 28. I remember I called my sister Liz and said I figured it out because my.
0: By the way, by the way, my sister's name is Liz. Oh, that's so funny. Well, I. I this is fucking amazing. I, I lost my. Are you older or younger? I'm
1: older. I lost her 10 years ago to breast cancer, but she was I'm my so dear. She was. We were very close, and I think there were times. What Was your age difference two years to the week? Two years. Yeah, I'm three and a half. And. I think I think that, you know, both of us would kind of call each other from time to time when we didn't get the kind of feedback or when something was hurtful from our dad. And I think that what I realized and I called my sister, I remember I was like 28 and I said, I think I figured it out. If we don't have any expectations for him, then we're going to be fine. It's only when we have expectations that he's going to say something fatherly and he doesn't that we're going to get screwed up. And from that moment on, I mean, I'm not going to deny that there weren't times when, uh, you know, I wish. But you changed, you know, but but I think that expectations are literally the engine. Uh, Um,
0: I think expectations are are the catalyst to so much unhappiness and are grounded in wild selfishness and lack of empathy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just like setting. It's not being negative. It's about it's, it's about managing your life in a way that you know, waking up every day, you know, are you going to allow others to disappoint you? And are you going to, is your antenna going to be so high that you're going to get affected by the way they say something or if they don't say something and then that's going to set you off on a, you know, can, dark can path. I,
0: can I tell you, can I tell, can I tell you the amazing addition to that combo? Yeah. it works in re- it, re- it works in reverse. I have had a very successful career. When I tell you, that I don't read any of my own headlines, don't think I'm special, could give a fuck, Doesn't. don't think it means anything. If I disappear tomorrow, I'll have a couple hours of trending on social media and the next day everybody will move on. So when you don't have expectations for the negative, you also don't have it for the positive, which allows you to be grounded in humility, which is very powerful. Well,
1: I also think in your case, let's be honest, I think you're also you're not resting on any, as they say, laurels. You're not You're not really taken by what you may have accomplished yesterday. You're more concerned with what you can accomplish today and tomorrow.
0: I think that's fair. I think for me, one of the great fears I have in my life is what happens when I become elderly and can't rely on this incredible thirst for optimism of tomorrow. Uh, I really actually genuinely spend a lot of time on this with myself, which is, I am so aware that my patience and looking forward to tomorrow's is such a foundation of my happiness that will I become logical at some point in a certain age where it can lead to unhappiness.
1: But, but do you think that age and, and hope are binary? I mean, because I don't know, I don't I know. mean, you look at people like, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I got the. The privilege of working for Norman Lear, you know, Norman's 99. I mean, he is a fountain of optimism um, throughout his whole life, even now. And I think that, uh, I don't know, I think you might surprise yourself because even as you get older, I think that there's an innate optimism that you have at the center of yourself that is going to be impervious to age.
0: That just really put me in a great mood and I appreciate it for that. Jim, let's talk about the book. Given that so many social media, media, you know, NFT creators who wanna build stories around their characters, Fortune 500 marketing executives, I just couldn't have thought of a better guest when you wrote this one. You are talking about one of the great media stories of all time, built in now, I didn't realize, I thought it was a little bit later, in, did you say 1972? Yeah. So you think about cable television or whatever you're going to educate me on as it, when it started. I know obviously it stands for home box office. Like the they, they innovated in a new medium, which I think, you know, my history strengths around certain things like that have really helped me be an innovator in web one, web two, and now web three. What's the thing that everybody who's listening can take from the hbo story if they're an individual or an executive of like what was the driving soul that helped it become what it became
1: i'll give you two quick headlines one is please and this happened with espn as well uh, a word of warning to entrepreneurs and innovators just because you come up with the idea just because you give birth to something doesn't mean that you will be entitled to stay with it Bill Rasmussen basically invented ESPN, and Chuck Dolan basically invented HBO. Neither of them were around after a year and a half. The parent companies took them out because they saw them uh, more as an IDM person rather than an operational person, and they didn't get to stay around. That's incredibly painful, and so be careful when the Lord wants to punish you He answers your prayers. Um, the second thing it speaks directly to the heart of the word innovation itself. You know this. HBO knows it. ESPN, SNL. You you can't just innovate once and then take a break. Mm. It is innovation mm. has to be part of your DNA. It has to be in the very bloodstream of the organization. Yes. And so yes. HBO innovated by using, you know, uh, light, bad language, violence uncut movies then they did it with comedy concerts but then they did it with technology and the satellite and then they did it with original programming starting with great shows like uh oz and uh larry sanders show and dream on and then you know obviously the sopranos and others but you constantly yeah you can't you can't just make one move you it has to be every single day you have to be in that mindset and i think both of those are you know i think powerful tales and lessons, um, you know, as evidenced by HBO.
0: Why is it? Why is the book called Tinderbox?
1: Because the idea of HBO and HBO throughout the decades has been flammable. It, 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 it literally mm. blew up the business. It changed television. In mm. some ways it changed our culture. It changed storytelling. It changed technology. The myriad impacts that HBO had beyond just that little Uh, desktop uh, that sat on your television. And so I kind of like the combustible quality of that.
0: I like that. Jim, let me ask you a fun question that's very nerdy for me personally. It's going to be a tougher question, I think, or maybe actually very easy. Given your answer two questions ago, which I believe in tremendously, that's why I always loved Madonna when I was growing up. Somehow I didn't understand at the time, but I was going to live that kind of life, which is, Reinventing yourself is the human version of that, right? And I always like kind of understood she was doing something smart. Um, If I asked you the singular human, because it takes a village—the founders, the—you know—again, I can't wait to read the book and figure out who were the executives, or the actor, or the salesman, or the woman behind the man, or who. If I asked you net net. One person, here we are. January 27th, we're filming this, 2022. If you had to give credit to one person for HBO to be what it is today because they got them through a rough patch, they decided not to hit the cancel button. Like, it's a kind of fun game knowing that you always build, I have the advantage of reading the other books so I know that this is always a marriott of individuals that really, that's the actual answer, of course. Comma, just for fun, Because I'm really curious what you're going to say. Who's the singular human that you would give credit to to have the biggest impact on HBO being what it is on January 27th, 2022?
1: And I can't do it by time period, right? I have to...
0: No, that's why I'm I'm making it challenging on you. But what you can definitely do is answer it and then followed up very quickly with some side dishes of a couple other people and why, because I think that'd be super nerdy cool.
1: I mean, look, I think, I mean, obviously you have to look at the early part of HBO because um, that was the critical time, right, when it gave kind of birth to itself.
0: But by the way, by the way though, and I'm sorry to interrupt, you know, I don't know the story well enough, but there might've been something that happened during a merger and acquisition in 1999 where something almost ha- like, you know, that's what's so cool about these stories, right? Of course, whoever invented it or got it through those early days. But ironically, in the history of businesses, sometimes it's a weird little thing like that.
1: Right. And there, by the way, there were those I mean, look, each era had its own kind of key person. So that's why I'm saying, like, if you have to talk about all 49 years, I mean, you have, You know, you have guys like Jerry Levin and Nick Nicholas early on who were just indispensable to HBO's growth. And you had people like Jeff Fuchs and Carolyn Strauss and Chris Albrecht and then Richard Plepler and others, uh, Casey Bloys now, who are indispensable to its survival. Um, But I guess, I mean, in many ways, I mean, in the book, I call Michael Fuchs the George Washington of HBO, because I think his fearlessness, his audacity, his ability to really let talent in the tent and be incredibly accommodating to them Um, with bold programming, I think that was probably the difference maker in the the most fundamental way. Um, That's not not to say that he did it alone. It's not to say that these other people weren't incredibly important, but he came along in the late 70s and created a world uh, that I think was far different than it would have been without him.
0: What makes, what what are some of the key ingredients to a storyteller like yourself who's grounded in listening? If somebody's listening right now and they're like, ooh, I like Jim better than Gary. Gary's loud and about. I like the way Jim's talking about himself. I'm like that. I get this a lot, you know, where certain pieces of content in the last 15 years really hit the introverted or the listener before they talk. Things that don't come as obvious about the way I roll I do a different form of listening. I listen to talking. I've got a whole style to myself. But for all the listeners who are listening, who associate more with your DNA, what are some of the things you picked up along the way that allow someone like you that doesn't like I, let alone I, doesn't even love we, um, has truly written some of my favorite liter- like books because he goes and interviews 600, 500, 400 people and puts this all together. For the person at home right now listening, walking their dog on the treadmill, who is 15 or even 55 and is ready to finally listen to me and take advantage of the internet and maybe start a side hustle that might lead to a career similar to yours. What are the superpowers or the complementary skills that need to come along with, let's say a good listener, or how would you even define what I'm trying to say here and then answer it?
1: I think one of the things, I mean, look, I got a couple of graduate degrees because I didn't want to let go of school. I, I love being in school because you
0: felt because you felt because you felt safe there. No,
1: because I thought I mean, not to be corny and that's sound like too much of a nerd. But like what's cooler than going into into a room and having an expert talk to you and tell you things that you can then <laughs> add to your own knowledge base. And um, I think that, you know, that's part of what school is about. That's part of what reading is about. But I think you. I generally love listening to people. I love listening to smart people. I have. I, I have a, a huge degree of impatience for people who don't make sense to me, or who lie, or who um, don't pay attention to to facts. And uh, but for people who are good at what they do and who have a series of a road of accomplishment that they've traveled on, I mean. I You have to generally, genuinely be um, absorbed by them. And I think that a lot of times um, I just love it's almost like a privilege to talk to people like I do for these books who have created so many different things. I mean, to sit there and listen to David Chase or David Simon talk about The Sopranos or The Wire. I mean, I couldn't have written those shows. And and to talk and to, to trace.
0: Do you think, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know that I've just upset everybody listening, but I want to get things in. Do you think curiosity is a core strength of yours?
1: Uh, it's essential. I mean, if I don't wake up in the morning curious, or if I embark upon a book or any kind of reading assignment or any, any day, even if I'm not writing that day, um, if I'm not curious about something, that's like oxygen for me. I, I, I just, right. I, you know, I might as well just fold up the
0: tent and, uh Makes you sense. know, watch mm-hmm. an old movie. Mm-hmm. What about, who do you think, which person that you read most impacted your writing style?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, listen, when I was, uh. when I was at the Washington Post, I got to work on the, it was called the TV team with Tom Shales, who was the TV critic at the Washington Post for many years. He won the Pulitzer. I, I could never write like Tommy could, but I think the fact that he he wrote, you know, six days a week, he wrote a ton, and he would complain about it up until like three o'clock in the afternoon, then sit down and crush, crush it, and just you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, that was a powerful lesson. I also. I did a lot of research for George Will on books and George's discipline um, about writing and writing books was just incredibly important to me. And uh, again, it's a work ethic that I think, you know, that George had that I thought was incredibly powerful. And, you know, it, it meant a lot to me.
0: Do you think work ethic has been foundational for your success?
1: Hey, listen, when you're, when you're, just signed a book contract and you don't have to live. You don't have to turn in a book for like two and a half years and you're on your own. There's no one, there's no one telling you you got to turn something in today or you got to call somebody or whatever. You could just sit around and watch Seinfeld and Columbo. Right. I mean like there's, there's no one babysitting. Right. And so if you don't have your own kind of work ethic and you're, uh, and you want to challenge yourself,
0: by the way, sorry to interrupt, for all the kids there, Columbo was this great detective show in the 70s and 80s. I'm, Keep
1: going, I'm dating. I'm dating like, <laughs> you can sit around and watch Euphoria. Okay, you know, whatever. But, but um...
0: Hey Jimmy, actually on that note, cause I think we have some wild similarities. I am so ridiculously curious, but don't have the capacity of reading comprehension or sitting there. So I consume like society, like, like talk about being born in the right era. I was like made for this consumption graph of tweets and TikToks and like, just, it's it's crazy how grateful I am. Are you, are you very into, like, do you enjoy the process of knowing everything that's popping in pop culture? Just actually curious about that. Like, are you good at, like, is that like, does that get you going, like you wanna know what shows are doing well on Netflix? Like, what books, what? In food, like, are you good at, like, the having a pulse of what's
1: popping? I mean, I have to, to a certain degree, because I I talk, I give speeches, I talk, I'm on panels, or I moderate panels on, on culture and media. And so there's a certain degree mm-hmm. of that. I don't, like, pour mm-hmm. over the ratings every week about, you know, right. what's going on. But I think there are things in my wheelhouse, like, for instance, I'm particularly fascinated by the tremendous success Euphoria is having right now. Um, it's a very... I mean, I think Sam Levinson, who created it, is, yes. uh, I mean, just a genuine, genuine, uh, I mean, he's brilliant. He's hes a creative force, and he's going to be doing a lot of different things. I'm i am thrilled that so many people are watching the show, even though it's an incredibly difficult show to watch. Parents are scared to mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, scared to death of it, and, uh, but it's, powerful performances it's a different type of storytelling so like once something like that gets on my radar screen i'm going to pay attention to it because i want to understand whether it's resonating whether it's finding a home yeah, um, and, why. And, and why and why yeah i mean but there's a yeah. lot of other things like i i i really don't watch reality television i think the only reality show that um i've ever watched was this australian show called love on the spectrum about uh Uh, young adults who are on the spectrum finding love with each other if if you haven't seen it it's mind-blowing it is unbelievable it's so cool but uh i so i don't really give a shit about reality programming i'd
0: have never never watched about it it. never watched it yeah i mean once you captured the essence of it you you knew what you were getting yeah i i I mean it wasn't the hardest for it's not rubbernecking is a very simple human trait the complexity is not that hard to figure out why it works. Well, somebody
1: once asked me at a festival what my favorite season of Real Housewives of whatever was. And I like, literally, uh, I, I, I just said, I got to tell the truth. I've never watched one episode of any season of any of the episode, uh, any of the constructs. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I may be missing out something great, but you know, there's only so much time. That's the other thing too, yeah, right? You know everybody, that
0: everybody, everybody, of course, everybody has their own escapism. I, I don't do many things most regular normal the masses do meanwhile it's inconceivable for me to miss the four hours I need to allocate for a jets game every Sunday in the fall it's inconceivable my life like it's it would break my whole system but
1: how do you triage how do you decide do you have a discipline do you have a, a specific construct or do you do you just kind of have a like a monitor in your head about wait I better not go down this rabbit hole I better I better get off of I this.
0: trust I My triage is that I trust my intuition more than anything on earth. And thus, I'm very comfortable in my flow, right? Like, I'm incredibly disciplined with my time because it's my biggest asset. So, I mean, I literally have a 30-minute meeting on Thursday every week with my two chief of staffs and my three admins to look at every meeting I have the following week. I did that today, by the way. And like literally cutting a 30-minute meeting to 15. So I value my time remarkably. However, my curiosity and intuition together as teammates is the only thing I trust blindly on earth.
1: Do you have anybody on your team that can say to you, or you would want to say to you, move on, you're getting too mired in whatever you're doing at the time?
0: Not in the creative process. Right. Maybe in like, maybe in like this church or secondary things in my life, like the operational part of my life. Right but in my creative process, when I have an intuition, nobody, for example, a year ago today could have ever, my mother combined with my brother, who I think is a genius and 64 of the next people I admire the most could sit me down a year ago today and say, look, Gary, this NFT thing, like these 20 hour days for 29 days in a row is a bad idea. They couldn't even, they, all of the people I value the most with the greatest data of all time, wouldn't even waver me 0. .0001. When I'm in, I'm in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, me too. I can, it's very hard to not only that but I wouldn't want anyone to have that kind of responsibility because it's kind of like a no-win situation. I mean if you're absorbed situation. if you're absorbed by what you're doing, I mean you just don't want
0: I'm in full as an entrepreneur when I get into those places I'm in full full weird artist mode. Like when I like I never associated with artists my whole life and then when I got older I'm like wait a minute that's exactly what I am as an entrepreneur. Like Like, I totally understand those musical characters that want to go in a cocoon for 27 days. I very much understand the painter that wants to go off the reservation and do like, I couldn't understand it more. I do it in entrepreneurship. But when
1: you, like, you know, their Eastern philosophy has this, you know, concept uh, about boxes. And so when you're in one facet of your world, do you literally go into a box and you have blinders that totally disengage on other parts of your life, or are you somehow able uh, to operate no, in that?
0: No, yeah, I'm able to operate. I Here's what I would call, when you just said that, I my brain immediately went to 80-20. 80% is 100% in the obsession, 20% has an eye peeking out to make sure all the other functional aspects of my life, family or my responsibilities don't burn to the ground.
1: Right, it's precarious though, right? I mean, it's more. Yeah, it's it's, it's probably it, second nature for you, it, but it can be. It sometimes like I have to when I'm writing, I I have to disengage sometimes because I get so many emails or calls or whatever. It would be just pointless to try and do it. But you you then. You I know. also
0: I also do something a little bit different. I don't go into tangible output. I go into thinking. What I mean by that is. I have the luxury that my career is not predicated on actually pounding out the book or making the sculpture. Almost everything I actually do is make the observation and then start doing the micro output of creation that lends itself to that. As a matter of fact, Friends, my NFT project is probably the closest. And to your point, I went off the grid for a week to get the thing done. Um, It's really fun when you're, it's probably like you for writing. There's something very special when a human finds their true, true thing, and go and are in their true thing at that moment. A, an athlete training, a, a, a you know producer and singer putting together an album, a writer, uh, an entrepreneur coding, a parent. Uh, my mother is that, by the way. Let me give you one that isn't talked about enough. My fucking mother. From the day I was born to the day AJ left for college when he was 18, she was in her zone. Truly happy the whole way. Wow. Like really struggled with empty nest when my little brother left. Luckily we were 11 years apart, so she got a nice long run, call it 1975, AJ was born 87 plus 18, to 2005. Like From 75 to 2005, that 30 year window, if she was on this podcast right now, She would talk the way we would talk about our thing, like for all the trials and tribulations of motherhood and immigrating from the Soviet Union, not having much, having a husband that worked every minute. So she was soloing it, like all that stuff, like making her way in America, you know, all like she was at her happiest point. It was her thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, and by the way, isn't it great to know that? Because that's another way of also processing and prioritizing your life like when 100%. you you know when you realize that you derive more psychic income from being a parent or doing something like that it's it is um i think it becomes like an essential truth it becomes the foundation it, to every it, day
0: it is the thing that makes me emotional even as i'm talking to you right now that i can't believe that i was so blessed that my thing is being an entrepreneur which i will do to the last breath with my body will not give out my children will not move out of the house like like, you know, it is insane to me that my essence, the, the DNA makeup, I get to do my thing forever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's why another just coming back to our point earlier, that's why I think that you have you, you have this force in your life that really isn't dependent upon age. This is an ageless enterprise that you've embarked upon because-
0: I think that's right. I think the thing that I worry about, I'm sorry to interrupt, is like, I'll just logically know at 93, I'm like, man, it's not like I got 40 more. Years. You know, like that. But like I, you know, it's one of these things that I enjoy life so much. Like, Jim, like actually like scary much, like too much. I don't know. Like, I'm just so grateful of being yeah. a human being. It's like, I just want to be one forever. But you know
1: what? <laughs> at 93, you'll be grateful that you're- alive and kicking and Got doing whatever you're doing yeah you know that's, what i mean there's like I think that's fair. there's always a way I think that's
0: i think that's right by the way i know that's right i still want to live forever can you help me out
1: yeah you'll probably figure out a way
0: <laughs> jimmy thank you so much for being on this show everybody who's listening please look at this man's catalog whether it's snl or espn or cia which i thought was fucking phenomenal um or now hbo and a senate actually now i'm like fuck i'm gonna actually read that because i don't think i have a good enough grasp on it, so I'm actually now curious about that. I have a feeling, just knowing my audience, there's one, if not five, uh, that are worth you checking out, and for the massive underpriced nature of what a book costs, in my belief, for when it returns, go check those out. Jim Miller, thank you so much. Thanks
1: for having me. It's great to see you.